Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Today, I'll be talking with Nicole Hassoun about her new book, Globalization and Global Justice, which has just been published by Cambridge University Press. Nicole Hassoun is an associate professor of philosophy at SUNY Binghamton. Citizens of well-developed liberal democracies enjoy an unprecedented standard of living, while a staggering number of people worldwide live in unbelievable poverty. It seems obvious that the well-off have moral obligations to those who are impoverished. But there's a question regarding the nature and extent of these obligations. Some hold that well-off societies and their citizens owe substantial duties of humanitarian assistance to the global poor, while others claim that our duties are stronger than this. They claim that our duties to the global poor are a matter of justice. In her new book, Nicole Hassoun proposes a new kind of argument for what she calls serious moral duties to the global poor. Her argument turns on the claim that in our globalized world, People all over the world are subject to the coercive power of international institutions. Drawing upon a familiar principle of political philosophy, she claims that coercive institutions are legitimate only if they can win the consent of those subject to them. From this, she argues that international institutions owe to the global poor whatever is required in order to enable them to exercise a kind of minimal autonomy. And this autonomy requires access to food, shelter, water, and education. Hassoun's argument, then, is that familiar minimal requirements for legitimate coercion entail more extensive positive duties to the global poor, And in her book, she identifies several policies that she believes must be put in place. Globalization and Global Justice is a self-contained and tightly argued work of political philosophy that I highly recommend. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Nicole Hassoun. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me on New Books in Philosophy this morning. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. How are you? Oh, I'm doing okay. Um, So today... My guest on New Books in Philosophy is Professor Nicole Hassoun. She's the author of the new book, Globalization and Global Justice, Shrinking Distance, Expanding Obligations. And this book has just been published by Cambridge University Press. Um, It's a great book and I highly recommend it. Um, The book proceeds in two parts. The first is a conceptual part um, and the second is largely empirical, though not devoid of normative analysis. For that, um, the first part presents uh, what Nicole calls a new kind of argument for serious moral obligations to the global poor. The second part presents some policy strategies and recommendations 
for meeting these obligations. Um, this is a very engaging book. It's a, it's one of its many virtues is, uh, the way it combines, um, sharp philosophical analysis with, um, real empirical, uh, or concern for real empirical data. Um, and so there's a lot to talk about. Uh, we'll get to, uh, the details of the book in a moment, but first, Nicole, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to philosophy and how in particular you came to this particular project? Great. Um, so I guess I became interested in, uh, doing philosophy, uh, when I was pretty young, uh, I remember being in kindergarten and thinking about whether God existed and coming to the conclusion that he did not. Uh, and then that didn't make my parents so happy, but it, it led to a lot of great conversations with my gym teacher. So um, uh, I, I, uh, I didn't think I would go into it until I realized that it was possible to actually make a living doing this as a professor and uh, switched my major in college from pre-vet. But what I really got excited about was doing global justice when I started traveling and seeing how people were living in a large part of the world. So I became interested in writing this book when I was in the Philippines. And uh, the people I was working with, the Philippine Community Organizers Society, took me to visit this woman, Tamil, who was living in a garbage dump and picking up garbage uh, to sell to the recyclers for about $2 a day. And it was just striking to see how this person was living in light of the fact that about 2.8 billion people, almost half the world's population, lives on the equivalent of what $2 a day purchases in the U.S. And so as globalization kind of shrinks distance and it brings people around the world into closer contact, I think it raises really pressing questions of global justice. So what do those of us in developed countries owe to people like Tamil in developing countries? And that's the question that motivates this, this project. Well, excellent. Um, so um, the title of the book um, globalization and global justice, at least the main title, um, makes reference to uh, two concepts, global justice and uh, globalization. Um, and these are the focus, uh, in philosophy at least, of a vast literature. And in fact, um, these are the, the focus of a vast literature that uh, spans across lots of different disciplines, economics, political science, philosophy, sociology, and so on. Um, would you be able to uh, sort of help us situate um, uh, your own contribution to these debates, uh, which we'll get to in a minute, in, in the context of some of the broader issues that, um, that you're trying to address? Right. So I think um, interdisciplinary inquiry is really important in this book. Uh, does try to engage with the work of, of economists and uh, political scientists and sociologists as well as philosophers. Um, to answer some, I think, pressing philosophical questions about our obligations to aid, and then um, to address the skeptical worry that, that there may not be anything we can actually do to help the global poor if we do have um, obligations to them, as I argue. I take it uh, the main import of the book is that it can address sort of two skeptical camps, two or three skeptical camps um, within philosophy. Those um, who maybe like libertarians or actual consent theorists just are skeptical of any positive obligation state at all. And then uh, those who really um, embrace kind of a status view in which we have uh, a significant uh, sort of uh, obligations to give priority to compatriots or co-citizens. And the thought is that 
Um, many of these people are really deeply concerned about coercion, and uh, they believe that we should uh, that the coercion that states exercise has to be justified, and then and this generates significant obligations of either global justice or legitimacy. But I argue that there are many course of international institutions as well, and that these uh, this kind of coercion in international affairs can also generate significant obligations of properly global justice or legitimacy. Right. So you're, the, the kind of view that you're developing then um, sounds like it's um, uh, uh, in conflict with a, with a, with a lot of the, the going views of, of global justice. Um, so you're against skeptical views that say justice is something bounded by state borders, that uh, duties of justice could be owed only among uh, compatriots, um, and that what members of uh, affluent societies might owe to citizens of um, impoverished societies are duties of assistance or humanitarian kinds of duties rather than uh, duties of justice. So you want to oppose that line and say, no, these are duties of justice that we owe to the global poor. But it's also an anti-utilitarian style argument as well, as I take it, um, that it's not uh, a Peter Singer um, view either, in that it's not about um, maximizing well-being or something like this. The The view instead, is, uh, if I'm reading you correctly, has to do with um, legitimacy. Um, could you tell us a little bit about about the – and this, I take it, is what you mean when you say it's a new kind of argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the, the focus on legitimacy and in particular on the, the claim that there are in existence already um, global institutions that have to be legitimated because they're fundamentally coercive? Okay, yeah. So I guess the argument in the first half of the book um, – it's set off in, in contrast to uh, views of our obligations that are either grounded in, in people's basic interests or autonomy. So, for instance, a human rights theory in which people have a human right to whatever they need uh, to live a minimally good life. Um, although I think those arguments are compelling, and I'm fully convinced that people have such human rights, there's also um, significant criticism of these arguments, either that the duties they generate are too demanding or inappropriate, or simply the idea um, that that we don't have any positive rights um, to aid because that requires some people to sacrifice their freedom for others. So if we haven't done anything to other people, uh, then we don't have an obligation uh, to aid them. And so uh, I realize that each of these sort of perspectives on these positive rights, um, uh, though I happen to favor one, may be unanswerable from the other perspective. And what I'm I'm trying to do is give an argument that can address some of the skeptics about um, about the importance of our our basic interests and autonomy sort of in grounding obligations that the the mere fact that these things are important uh, can give rise to obligations. So the argument I give goes roughly like this. So there are, I think, um, many coercive international institutions. And in order for the kind of coercion uh, that they exercise to be legitimate, that is uh, justified, those... um, who are subject to a course of rules should at least be able to object, if not consent, to their subjection. In order to be able to even object to a course of rules, people have to have basic reasoning and planning capacity, some minimal components of autonomy. 
And in order to uh, maintain those uh, capacities, people need things like food, water, perhaps some shelter, education, health care, and so forth. And so if nobody else is helping these people secure the things that they need, then the only way the course of institutions to which their subject can be legitimate is if they sort of fill the breach um, because they can't legitimately exercise course of force over those who can't even object to their rule. So that's, that's a basic line of argument. And then I, I run that line of argument for many different liberal theories. And I take it um, to some degree, liberalism is concerned with individual freedom. Um, and that kind of freedom isn't sort of constituted by the social order, but it can be compatible with significant constraints on social life. Uh, but uh, these views, if they're contractualist or even uh, communitarian in certain ways, um, uh, might hold that in order for the relationship between the rulers and the rulers to be appropriately free, uh, people have to have these basic capacities that they have to at least be able to object to course of rule. So I kind of run that line of argument for a variety of different uh, liberal views, including hypothetical consent theory and actual consent theory and certain communitarian views. All right. So would it be, that's very helpful. Would it, would it be right to say then um, that uh, one of the components of your argument is that the negative rights that any liberal in this philosophical sense of liberal, we're not talking about Bill Clinton versus Ronald Reagan. We're talking about, uh, you know, the, the tradition of John Locke and following, um, is the argument that the negative rights that any liberal, uh, is interested in are going to what entail or, um, bring in their wake certain entitlements or positive, uh, uh, positive rights to, the conditions under which uh, the negative rights can be exercised. Am I getting this right? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's pretty much it. So the the thought is um, that if you're committed to a certain kind of uh, liberal theory of legitimacy, um, that doesn't just focus on um, showing that whatever course of institutions are imposed on people have to be decent, if not fully just, but expresses the idea that the actual relationship between the rulers and every person who is ruled has to be voluntary in some way, then you're going to be committed to uh, the idea that um, people have to have basic capacities under course of rules. And then if that's so, and if nobody else is helping these people secure these things, then the only way the course of institutions can be legitimate, argue, is if they sort of fill in that breach, if they um, help people secure the capacities that they need. So these positive obligations are sort of logically necessary conditions for the liberal kind of legitimacy uh, requirement, I think, um, is quite common in political philosophy. Right, good. So, um, and I take it then that, uh, given that you you refer constantly in the book, and, and, and you've just mentioned now twice, that the, the coercive institutions have to... Um, provide the conditions under which this minimal kind of autonomy could be realized um, if no one else is or if no other institution is. So it's a, it's a, it looks like a more modest claim than it might appear at, at first because the kinds of global economic institutions that you're interested in uh, don't have the – might not have in many cases uh, any actual um, requirements – to um, provide for the development of autonomy uh, in this minimal sense for uh, for people because 
they might already be autonomous or other institutions, domestic and otherwise, might uh, be doing the job. Is that right? Right. I mean, so in a way, it's a really minimal requirement. So it, it, the obligation is to ensure that people can can at least object to these rules. And that um, can be fulfilled. You would have fulfilled the obligation, I suppose, if for whatever reason they are, in fact, able to object. Either they're able to do that sort of naturally, just um, without assistance, or um, friends or family or benefactors are providing the necessary assistance. But it can be an incredibly demanding obligation as well, um, because the obligation is to do literally whatever is necessary, you know, compatible with it being possible um, for the institution to do this, um, whatever is necessary for people to obtain those capacities. So if someone's in a coma from which they could never recover, then there wouldn't be any obligations uh, necessarily to aid that person. It may be impossible to help them. However, if they're in a coma um, from which they could recover, but it would be very expensive, um, then still for it to be legitimate to coerce that person, um, that person has to secure these capacities. And if nobody else is helping the person do that and they need assistance, then the course of institutions to which they're subject have to provide that assistance. And uh, you might say, well, okay, but um, they haven't caused the person's problem necessarily. Maybe it's brain cancer that put them in this coma, right? They might even be helping people in various ways um, secure some basic capacities, but maybe not all of them that they need to, say, object to course of rule. Um, and although I think there's many other reasons that course of institutions ought to help people, um, that the idea is that coercion really can't be legitimate unless people have these capacities. And so um, there's at least one strict, sort of strict necessary requirement for legitimacy that requires that they do whatever is necessary to ensure people meet this minimal threshold. Okay, so let me uh, – again, this is very helpful. Let me um... – push a little bit, uh, and, and this will um, help to get us into uh, uh, one of the, I, I thought, very refreshing aspects of the book, which is you have a whole chapter um, uh, in the first part of the book in which you, you, you address libertarian concerns. Um, I think, although I am not a libertarian, I think that libertarianism is a formidable view, um, and I like to see philosophers um, uh, engage with, with smart versions of, of libertarianism. Um, so, is the requirement of uh, that, that that coercive institutions um, ensure or make sure that um, those over whom their power is exercised sort of rise to the level of a certain basic uh, minimal conception of autonomy? Um, part of that is uh, motive, part of what motivates that uh, is your concern that the people who are subject to coercion could object. Um, and by object, you mean, you know, could opt out or, or what could, could determine that the coercive, uh, the coercive power is, is not, not justified in the right way or not being exercised in the right way. So, um, okay. could you tell us more about what the, what, what, what the objecting, uh, the power to object comes to? Right. So, I mean, I guess uh, what I think is that probably a lot more than just merely being able to, say, protest against uh, coercive rule would be required for the rules to be legitimate. Um, perhaps people have to be able to influence uh, the democratic process in some way um, by voting or uh, otherwise uh, exercising political power. Um, maybe they don't actually have to consent to the coercive rules, but there's a wide variety of views here. And at a minimum, 
people should at least be able to protest um, against the rules, even if they have no actual effect on them, even if they can't opt out. So it's it's really a minimal requirement that I think is um, probably uh, follows from from a wide variety of liberal views that I'm sort of um, trying to hinge the case on there. Because if if people even have to be able to do that, sort of uh, you know think about uh, their beliefs and desires and decide for themselves whether or not to go along with uh, the rule of the course of institutions, um, then they have to have basic sort of reasoning and planning capacities, and that's sufficient to say, that, well, then the people need to have adequate food and water and perhaps shelter and so forth to maintain those capacities. So I'm trying to work with a, a minimal threshold that I think could actually be made much more robust on, on probably the right theory of legitimacy. Um, it would be much more robust. And then the argument would, of course, um, have much more significant implications. Um, but I, I keep it minimal in part because maybe libertarians or actual consent theorists are going to say um, that that the kinds of capacities that issue that people need to say consent to even a, a course of system if they're an actual consent theorist say um, are going to be really minimal and so I don't I don't need to argue against that um, to get the, the the important I think practical implication of the argument and show the logical structure of it that um, might lead to much more robust uh, obligations. Okay, so um, let me then just ask the, the, the general uh, kind of question. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, there is a, a full chapter in, in the book um, in which you attempt to make the case to libertarians of a particular description, to be sure. Uh, uh, so you, make the, you try to make the case to libertarians uh, for um, the serious moral obligations to the global poor. Um, so two questions. Uh, uh, the first is um, uh, why take on the libertarians, or why think it, why do you think it's important to get them on board? Um, and the second is, you know, can you run us through uh, through the argument that you that you address uh, to them? Sure. Um, okay. So the I take it that libertarianism is kind of the stalking horse for liberalism in in the book, and I I think it's significant to address libertarianism because it plays the role in political philosophy that, um, I guess, idealism plays in epistemology. It might be a radically implausible view for most people, um, but it's not obviously incorrect. And so there's a question about, is it consistent? Um, and if it, even if it is consistent, uh, what are the implications of the view? Uh, are there good reasons to reject it? Um, and so this chapter um, addresses libertarians by a, a particular... Uh, right libertarians who sort of are, don't already accept the conclusion there's obligations to aid, who aren't anarchists. That is, they think there should be some state, um, probably a minimal state, that exercises uh, control over a territory that's traditionally defined, so not a donut hole state like some libertarians have advocated. Right. Um, and then they also have to think that it, everyone, even sort of uh, the non-autonomous but potentially autonomous, have some basic libertarian rights. Okay. And then the thought is that um, there's a good argument, I think, uh, for the conclusion that libertarians should be actual consent there. So John Simmons and others have said uh, that if you don't uh, secure people's actual consent to subject them to a monopoly on coercive force, that is a state, um, then you're violating their rights to protect their rights. And I find that um, argument to be compelling. So I say, okay, suppose that's correct. And I consider whether whether it is a bit, but suppose that's correct. Then um, can we show that libertarians shouldn't just be actual consent theorists? Maybe they should be some kind of welfare liberal. 
Um, the thought is that, um, okay, if, if people have to actually consent to coercive institutions, then they have to be able to consent to coercive institutions. And again, if nobody else is helping people secure the capacities they need for this consent, then the only way uh, the coercive institutions uh, to which they're subject can be legitimate is if they sort of help these people. So the argument is quite similar to the argument um, that's more generally addressing libertarianism, or sorry, liberals in the second right. chapter. Um, but it, it, it try to, tries to address the, the details of, of at least this kind of libertarianism in particular uh, in, the, in the next chapter. So let me, uh, if, if, I, if, you, if you will permit me to um, pretend for a moment to be uh, the kind of libertarian that you're, that you're addressing. Um, and let me sort of uh, raise um, a kind of critical response, and 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 th that's not uh, addressed in the book. But here's what I take: um, the kind of uh, right rather than left uh, libertarian uh, is going might say in response, particularly about the um, the the business we were talking about just a moment ago about the robustness of um, the capacity to object. Um, because I take it that libertarians uh, of the kind that you're wanting to address are going to say that part of what um, part of what's required if uh, institutions that are coercive are going to be legitimate um, is not just the capacity to protest uh, coercive uh, uh, power, but actually the the capacity to opt out of it or rid oneself of it or uh, um, uh, escape coercive uh, institutions. Mm -hmm. So it looks as if the libertarian is going to um, uh, um, be totally on board with, um, uh, with a lot of the premises of the argument. Um, if an institution is coercive, it should be legit. It has to be, it's morally required that it's legitimate if it's going to be pushing people around. If it's going to be pushing people around and it needs to be legitimate, the people who get pushed around are going to have to um, consent to it, uh, actually. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and, um, but actual consent, um, and maybe even uh, hypothetical consent that's worth its, you know, uh, uh, that's worth its, uh, um, you know, th that's real, um, always has to have a real opt out or exit or escape uh, option. That is, that it's not enough that. It's not enough for consent that you're able to complain or protest. You have to actually be able to uh, tell the coercive institution to go away uh, or to make it go away. Right. And so that looks a little bit more, more robust uh, uh, than, uh, than what you're requiring. Good. So, yeah. So what I'm saying is that if, if you have to actually consent, then you should agree that people have to at least be able to consent, right? It may be that they also have to actually consent. And so the, the institutions are going to remain illegitimate if people are just uh, given the capacity to consent. More is going to follow from this requirement. Um, but even if uh, there's some libertarians who think, well, um, if you consent to something, um, you're really bound by it. Um, so they don't have to have an exit clause. Um, like you can consent even into slavery or something. Um, this this minimal requirement should follow. Um, if you have to exit, be able to exit from the course of institutions, then um, then I think even more is going to follow uh, from the libertarian view. Um, I'm not sure that libertarians that are sort of fruitfully engaged with international affairs 
um, would do well to say that because uh, it doesn't seem like there's you know reasonable exit for most international organizations at least right now so that would suggest that we'd have to radically rework um, uh, many of the course of rules that that exists and bind people but you know perhaps they would also want to hold that which I think um, would just say that that there's going to be even further obligations to these people what's interesting is um, I was stressing before that this obligation that I'm defending is pretty radical. Um, I think it would be easy um, for some easy or for some liberals uh, to qualify their views in ways that would sort of um, maybe sort of allow them to make this requirement much more um, or much less radical. So we have to ensure that people can secure um, basic capacities and what they need uh, for those capacities is, is the strict requirement. Of course, um, it may be impossible uh, to do that in some cases. Uh, and it, if someone was going to say, well, you know, that there's at least a conflict of, of rights or obligations going on here, um, and there are certain principles for making trade-offs between fulfilling these rights and obligations, uh, then, then a liberal might be able to say, well, okay, in some cases, very expensive medical care doesn't have to be provided. Um, I'm not quite so sure libertarians get out of it that easily, easily because they have a really strong requirement um, of you know, basic rights. So these libertarian rights are often invaluable in a way. Um, you have to get people's consent or you violate their natural right to punish. And, and that's a really strict requirement. So if you don't uh, do whatever is necessary to help people secure those uh, uh, capacities, and you're going to violate their rights. And so even if there's a rights violation that's required in order to help people meet that threshold, what we have is a, is a conflict of libertarian rights that might be very difficult for them uh, to avoid because, uh, because of the way they generally, I think, conceive of, of rights. Well, excellent. Um, so that's great Let, and, and, and compelling, uh, at least I find it. Um, so let me can I can I push one in one other direction uh, on on this uh, from the other side perhaps conceptually from the libertarian side absolutely uh, which is um, I could imagine uh, a certain kind of um, political theorist who might be uh, sort of on the radar screen of liberalism but might have some worries about liberal liberalism and so might not be sort of a mainstream liberal um, who might have certain kinds of multicultural concerns mm -hmm. about the concept of autonomy. So uh, l l let me just sort of spell out the, the, the critical thought on this end and, and, and let's see how, how you deal with it. Um, so I can imagine somebody saying something like the following, um, Nicole, this all sounds great. But this idea of even minimal autonomy that you have, especially when you start talking about things beyond food, water, and health care, but a certain kind of education and a certain kind of education that's going to enable citizens to um, consent or not consent or object or protest, um, I just imagine someone saying, that sounds um, liberal in a way that raises concerns about imperialism and um, liberal interferences with traditional uh, societies or traditional ways of life that might not have autonomy as um, not only as a value but might not might even reject the value of that kind of autonomy now of course to to uh, to liberals like like you and me um, uh, you know we value autonomy very highly <laughs> 
Uh, and so uh, we think that uh, certain kinds of traditional uh, ways of uh, communal life uh, raise serious questions about justice. Um, but I guess I'm just wondering about, you know, um, uh, the, the concern that this starts looking – uh, imperialistic and uh, requiring the imposition of certain kinds of liberal or distinctively liberal values uh, on traditional societies. Is this a concern? Um, I guess I, I'm not sure uh, that it has to be. So I think we can keep these sort of capacities for consent or, uh, or the ability to sort of object to course of rules uh, fairly minimal in a way that should make it uncontroversial for um, anyone. And so these are sort of basic reasoning and planning capacities. And uh, the idea is that, you know, we don't have to have some robust conception of rationality or, or reasoning like Kant, um, where everyone has to accept the categorical imperative as unconditionally required or something. We can uh, have a, a, in mind sort of minimal instrumental reasoning capacities where people um, can navigate through their lives um, uh, without uh, confusion or um, have difficulty making plans for the future, for instance. Um, so they do, they, this, this uh, capacity for autonomy is, uh, does require certain kinds of internal freedoms or self-control. People have to be able to decide what they want to do uh, for themselves, make the decisions of a normative agent. Um, they also have to have some external freedom, right? Freedom from constraint. Um, they can't be jailed or, uh, or tied up or something, um, some kinds of liberty. But, uh, but these capacities can be ones that, you know, any human in any culture basically needs uh, to make it through uh, their day or their life and that are valuable to everybody. Um, uh, but it's not the value so much of, of, of autonomy, though, that's, you know, driving this. So the thought is that, you know, what justifies someone in coercing another person? Um, well, uh, there are many different views on that, but... On a communitarian theory, it's going to be that, well, the legitimacy vests in a relationship of a certain kind that doesn't need to be consensual, right? Um, uh, nevertheless, someone might say um, people should be able to uh, inform their communities, participate in their communities, and that communities are really valuable um, because they promote or give rise to individual identity or, or even autonomy in a more robust sense. So. Uh, on a wide variety of, of views, it seems like people should have these basic reasoning and planning capacities. Um, uh, and, and then in order to, say, decide for themselves whether or not uh, they want to abide by the course of institutions to which they're subject, if there's a problem with their communities, to bring that to light, and that might be very important um, for, uh, for, for improving the community and making it a, a good community to be a part of. So as Charles Taylor kind of puts this, he says, um, these sorts of freedoms protect our, uh, the crucial moral interest that each of us has in the authentic development of the other. Um, of course, there are communitarians who might think that they're liberals and they don't think people need substantive freedoms at all under course of rules. So these these people might embrace your view about um, that you were suggesting, and not yours, but when you were suggesting about rights to freedom of exit. So Chandra and Kugenthaus thinks that people only have to have freedom of conscience and the, the uh, freedom of exit is sufficient to preserve this. And, uh, um, but I think people should really be able to decide whether or not to abide by course of rules or to consent to them for themselves in order to have a real right of exit. So if communitarians deny this, I think they're de denying an important strand in liberal thought. 
as Kimlicka would maybe say, liberalism is, I think, committed to or even defined by the view that liberals, sorry, that individuals should have the freedoms and capacities they need to question and revise the traditional practices of their community. So right. see that whether they're worthy of allegiance or not. Right, right, right. Um, good. So it, it, it does seem to me that, uh, that the, the view that you're promoting here um, has to ally with the Kimlicka or something like the Kimlicka line on the multicultural question. That is that um, whatever kind of multiculturalism is worth accommodating, um, uh, even in this Kimlicka, I take it, the Kimlicka view is it's a robust form of multiculturalism, that there's a, um, uh, there, there, there's a connection with liberal commitments that, uh, that multiculturalists multiculturalism worth accommodating is not in the end inconsistent with liberal autonomy, but is required by it or something, something of this sort. Yeah, I, um, I think that the liberal, uh, so the, the book is addressed to liberals. So this has to be a liberal communitarian theory for me for, for it to sort of fall within the purview of the book. I mean, there is a view on communitarianism where it's really communities that are sort of in the first place valuable. Um, but I, I think you might be able to say some things about, um, what makes a community valuable and people being able to question that community um, in part is in sort of making it a, a good a good community to be a part of um, where it, it wouldn't be sort of obviously liberal though it might end up being liberal enough for for this argument to work all right well um, can we move to part two of the book Absolutely. Would that be okay yeah thank you uh, great so um in part two, you take on um, some of the more um, uh, empirical and policy-based uh, uh, kinds of questions. That is, uh, you take yourself having established in, in, in part one um, this this new argument for thinking that there are serious obligations to the global poor. Um, and then in part two, uh, the question becomes, uh, what kinds of institutions and, uh, um, actions do we need to take in order to satisfy these serious obligations? So, um, I take it that the, 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 the core of the, the policy, uh, and empirical stuff is, um, sort of two pronged. Uh, the first, uh, 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 move is to make a case for thinking that, um, aid is an appropriate instrument for uh, meeting these obligations. Um, can you tell us how that runs? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I'm, I'm motivated to consider some of the rules and institutions guiding international development, primarily because most of the global poor live in developing countries. And then uh, some of the major proposals on the table are, should, you know, should we promote free trade or foreign aid? Um, and so I consider the case for aid um, in light of recent philosophical criticisms. And so most of the philosophers who have criticized aid argue that it's either ineffective or counterproductive. But they've done this primarily uh, by drawing on case study data that hasn't been rigorously evaluated. And when you look at better data, there's both macro-level data, so data about the effects of at least certain kinds of aid generally that show that certain kinds of aid generally um, help people um, meet their basic needs. And then there's some micro-level evidence that there's many you know, particular aid programs that are doing a lot of good, helping people secure adequate food, water, shelter, and so forth. And so um, part of, part of the, the point of the chapter is just to say that. Um, but I also uh, think that it, it has some important lessons for development economists and for philosophers that are sort of interested in, engage, in engaging in empirical 
uh, debate. So if you're going to argue that it is or isn't a good idea in part drawing on empirical evidence, I think it's important to understand what makes evidence appropriate or inappropriate for a certain purpose. And so a large part of this chapter is, is trying to explain um, explain that uh, or make an argument that, uh, you know, for showing uh, that we want to um, give aid in general of a certain kind, we, need, we should use rely on certain kinds of evidence, whereas if we're looking at particular programs, again, there's better and worse evidence for, for making the case that those are successful. Um, I also think, like I said, it, it can tell some things, perhaps uh, suggest some things to development economists, so they um, are, are a little bit more used to working with uh, empirical evidence in general. I think uh, it Im implicitly questions the focus of most development aid at, at the country level. Um, so even though there's a lot of evidence or discussion about whether aid uh, generally is good for growth in a country, um, that's not necessarily what matters. It's not clearly what matters in light of the argument in the first half of the book or many other arguments about obligations to give aid. So when philosophers are talking about it, they often think about aiding poor people, right? Not necessarily right. poor countries on average. Um, and so when we disaggregate the impacts of aid, um, we can find out a little bit more about it. Oh, excellent. So um, then the second uh, uh, move uh, in the empirical part uh, is um, to make a case for um, at least a qualified case for free trade as um, or establishing institutions of free trade as a way of meeting the obligations. Um, uh, can you tell us how that runs? That was surprising to me that uh, that, that that one that one might uh, um, move in this direction. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I came to this as a little bit more skeptical of the benefits of free trade than than I am now, which might be surprising if you read the book. But um, but I guess uh, you know many people argue that the the solution to world poverty is uh, free trade and not foreign aid. And I don't think there's a single solution to world poverty. I think poor people have many problems, and we need many ways of addressing the problems that poor people face. Um, but this chapter looks at the case for free trade um, primarily theoretically. So I look at the arguments from comparative advantage uh, in in this chapter and suggest that they don't show um, that trade is, you know, even generally going to benefit the poor. So what those arguments show is that aid, um, if countries, sorry, not aid, trade, uh, right. if countries specialize in the thing in which they have a comparative advantage, uh, can lead to what's called a proto-optimal state. So it's a situation where um, the, the rich could, or the people who benefit could, um, in theory, compensate the losers from trade. Um, that doesn't mean any compensation will actually take place. And so uh, when, you, when you look at the empirical evidence, and I, I do that uh, very little in this chapter, but I have done it extensively in, um, in the Journal of Moral Philosophy paper, right. for instance. But uh, it's enough to say that it's clear that, the, that aid, both in theory and in practice, probably has mixed effects on the poor. So in some cases, it's very beneficial for poor people. In other cases, free trade can harm poor people. And so there's, uh, and this is true both in, in present generations and in future generations. And so if there is an obligation to sort of um, ensure everyone can meet their basic needs, there may be reasons to constrain free trade in certain instances. And so uh, the, the chapter concludes with canvassing some of these proposals uh, for doing this. So things like trade-related adjustment assistance programs that help people who lose their jobs uh, due to free trade. 
uh, linking trade agreements to agreements to improve labor or wage standards, and, and things like fair trade, and sort of defending these proposals against some different objections. All right, excellent. So now let me ask um, a uh, sort of a broader kind of question, um, which you touched on uh, a moment ago. Um, so are the the serious obligations owed to the global poor um, obligations that are mainly uh, that mainly fall to um, governments or collections of governments or to citizens in well-off countries with stable governments? Exactly, uh, can, can you, because uh, part of the free trade stuff uh, discussion and the aid, um, uh, I take it as uh, implications for individual citizens of wealthy countries, um, but uh, on whom primarily do, do these obligations fall? Right. So um, the, the obligations that are defended in the first part are obligations on coercive international institutions. And so um, some of these international institutions are institutions giving aid. So the World Bank, for instance, um, gives a lot of aid. Um, but I, I tend to embrace a view of obligations that I sort of sketch it in the first chapter, um, as sort of the traditional uh, view of the obligations correlative to human rights, in which case... Um, these obligations are maybe primarily fall on some institutions, uh, international institutions or governments. Uh, and then secondarily, um, those who either support or uphold these institutions may have obligations uh, to, to change them or to step in and fill the breach when um, they're failing in, in their uh, primary obligations. But I, I don't in the book really cash out or defend uh, an account of the obligations uh, correlative um, to... Um, sort of account of how we should distribute the obligations that, that are defended in the first part in any detail. And in fact, the second part is supposed to be largely independent from the first part of the book in this way, that even if you were to reject my new arguments for aiding the global poor, but you accepted some human rights obligations or even consequentialist obligations um, to, to the global poor, then you might be able to accept everything I say in the second part of the book. And and I'd love to uh, say a few words about actually the last chapter of the book as well, because I take it that um, practically it, it may be uh, the most interesting. Sure, please do. Okay, so um, after considering the case for aid and trade, um, I argue that you know there's reasons to try to make free trade fair, and one of the proposals that um, uh, that that I advance is this proposal for something like fair trade in pharmaceutical and biotechnology. So if you're concerned about global poverty, um, one of the things you ought to be concerned about is global health. So that people need to be able to secure adequate health care. But uh, one of the biggest problems people have is in accessing essential medicines for diseases like malaria and tuberculosis and HIV. And, right. uh, and there's several problems that people face. One is that very few drugs are produced for these diseases, so very little research and development is done on them. And then they're often very uh, expensive. And so I have a, an idea about how to rate pharmaceutical companies based on their technology's impacts on global health. And the thought is if we had such a rating system, then we could give like the top 10% of companies um, a label that they could use on all their products, everything from pet vitamins to mouthwash, uh, that would create an incentive, hopefully, for companies to do whatever gets them highly rated. Because even if uh, a small percentage of, of people are willing to purchase products um, from highly rated companies, 
that could create, a, again, a huge incentive for companies to, to do what gets them highly rated. And there's many other things you could do with this rating system as well. So universities license in a large percentage of the drugs and technologies companies rely on. And if universities meet a condition of the sale of their licenses, that companies holding their technology should meet certain standards, then again, you create more incentive on the order of uh, $800 million worth of incentive if you even right. get um, a small percentage of universities to sign on to this. Um, for companies to do what produces um, a new global or more global health impact. And, and the thought is that this, this might be enough incentive to get you know one or two new drugs a year for the poor, but between 1997 and, and uh, some 10-year period in the right. 90s, I think there were like 13 drugs produced for diseases that primarily affected the poor, and most of those came out of military research. Um, so if you could just imagine the impact of a new HIV vaccine or, or malaria vaccine, I think it could be really important. Um, in any case, uh, uh, the book includes that. You know, there there are many uh, sort of things we can do to address the problems that poor people face, and, and we need to think creatively in this way about how to actually do that. Well, and thank you. Um, so the book is um, Globalization and Global Justice, um, and uh, thank you, Nicole, uh, uh, for 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 talking uh, to us about it. Um, I usually uh, finish these interviews um, by uh, uh, asking uh, authors uh, what's on the horizon. And um, as I mentioned before we uh, actually got started, this always is a, um, you know, I always struggle with whether to ask somebody whose book has just come out. Um, but Nicole, uh, what's next? Or what do you see happening next? All right. Well, yeah, thanks for having me. I um, I guess I'm working on a lot of things that are related to the book and a few things that aren't. So one is trying to extend sort of the major argument in the in the first part of the book to uh, address obligations to future generations. And then I'm actually working on the, the practical proposal, a rating system for pharmaceutical companies, uh, uh, in global health impacts, um, and looking at the, the diseases that they're addressing and the need for the drugs that they're producing, the treatment percentages that the access to treatment people have to those drugs and how effective they are in trying to rate companies on the basis of their drugs impacts. So it's a, a strange, non-philosophical perhaps project <laughs> that I'm engaged in. Um, and then I've gotten interested in, in population ethics and obligations to aid people both in, in present and future generations and so working with some more technical um, models on that. Well, that's excellent, um, and um, I will keep an eye out for uh, for articles and maybe a, a future book uh, on on some of these topics. Um, I want to thank you for your time uh, and uh, for talking to us about your new book, Globalization and Global Justice, Shrinking Distance, Expanding Obligations. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, yeah, sure. Take care now. All right, bye. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Nicole Hassoun of the State University of New York at Binghamton. We've been talking about her new book, Globalization and Global Justice, newly published by Cambridge University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening. <laughs>